Good morning, everyone. It's good to be here with you and reading and singing truth, gospel, glorious truth. If you're new with us today, uh, I want to welcome you again. My name is Jason Myers. I'm one of the pastors here at Piney Ridge Church. And one of the things you should know about us as pastors of Piney Ridge, hopefully if you are a covenant member or even a regular attender, you already know this, but that we are passionately committed to getting the gospel right and making the gospel clear. We are eager to have an accurate and correct understanding of the gospel and to presenting it comprehensively in its all its complete glory. And the reason we are so eager to do this is because we believe that ultimately the gospel is the only hope for this world. We believe that the gospel is the power of God for salvation for all who believe. We believe that the gospel is good news of great joy for all the peoples. But sadly, many find no hope in the gospel. Many do not believe in it. Many don't even see it as good news. Why is that? Why is it that people can hear the most glorious divine truth ever uttered to human ears and walk away completely unaffected? Why is it that people can hear the gospel good news truth about Jesus who came to live and love and serve and die and rise again, ascend on high and return one day all to reconcile sinners to God? How is it they can hear that and not be overwhelmed with humility and gratitude and joy? There are many ways to answer this question, but I want to spend a large portion of our time this morning answering what I think are the two biggest natural reasons why people reject the gospel and aren't overwhelmed by it. The two big natural reasons, I believe, are one, because they don't really think they need to be reconciled to God, or number two, they don't really care if they're reconciled to God. Exodus chapter 27 tells us about the bronze altar. It was a square wooden box made of acacia wood. And it had grating on the bottom and in the middle with these four horns on the corners. It was overlaid with bronze. And it was a place where the Israelites would go to take their offerings, these animal sacrifices, and lay them on the altar to be sacrificed to Yahweh in their place, as a substitute for themselves because of their sinfulness. So they may be accepted by God. And so the reason why God gave them the, the instructions to build this altar, the point of the altar was to help them to understand that they were in desperate need of being reconciled to God and to help them to care whether or not they were accepted by God. Daniel Hyde in his book, God in Our Midst, says this, these verses about the bronze altar are fundamentally, they fundamentally challenge our weak ideas about the nature of who God is, who we are, and our predicament before God. I, I think this is, this is what we're reading in Exodus 27, 1 through 8, and Exodus 38, 1 through 7, which is, tells us when the altar was constructed. These passages are, are fundamentally challenging all right, our, our weak ideas about God, about ourselves, and about our problem and our broken relationship with God. But they don't just challenge our weak ideas. I think they also correct our false ideas. 
But they don't just address our ideas about God because you see how we think about God and ourselves and our problem with God determines how we act and relate and respond to Him. And so the Lord commanded the altar to be built in order to, yes, challenge our weak ideas and to correct our false ideas, but also to, to challenge our weak and to correct our false responses to God so that we would be changed. Or to put it in a succinct summary statement, I would say that the bronze altar was meant to reveal much to sinners and to require much from sinners. God wanted the altar to be made so as to communicate the message regularly, revealing much to sinners and a message that required much from sinners. The bronze altar was the first thing that the Israelites would see as they walked into the tabernacle courtyard. And it was the largest thing they would see, other than the tabernacle itself. It was the largest piece of furniture, seven and a half feet by seven and a half feet square, four and a half feet tall, plus it was most likely built on uh, stones, and so it was lifted up. And it was not only the first thing they saw and the largest thing they saw, it was the only thing that the ordinary Israelite interacted with in the entire tabernacle courtyard. The basin that's beyond that, the lampstand, the, the bread of the presence, the incense, altar of incense in the holy place, that was just for the priest. And the Ark of the Covenant in the most holy place, that was only for the most high priest only once a year. The regular, ordinary Israelite man and woman could not go any further than right here at the altar. It was practically the center of Israelite worship. And I think the reason why it was the first thing, the largest thing, and the only thing that they interacted with was because it was to make the message of what God was revealing to them and requiring from them absolutely unavoidable. It's in your face. It's right here. It's the only thing you interact with. It's to make this message of what God is revealing and requiring unavoidable. We're going to get to the message of what God was requiring for His people in a few minutes. But first, what was the Lord revealing to them. Simply, he was revealing something about himself and something about them. He was revealing about himself that he is the holy, wrathful, and gracious God. And he was revealing about them that they were sinful, that they were a sinful people. Look with me at Leviticus chapter 1. The book of Exodus ends with chapter 40, where the tabernacle is completely finished. And the glory of the Lord is filling the, the tabernacle. And then they go right into Leviticus chapter 1 where the Lord calls Moses and says, Hey, if they're going to offer sacrifices now on the altar, verse 3, this is how they're to do it. Leviticus 1, 3 through 5. If his offering is a burnt offering from the herd, he shall offer a male without blemish. Why without blemish? Because God is without blemish. He is spotless. He is holy. He shall bring it, into, uh, bring it to the entrance of the tent of meeting that he may be accepted before the Lord. That's the purpose of it. He shall lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering, symbolizing that his sins are being transferred to this animal, and it shall be accepted for him to make atonement for him. We only sinners need their sins covered, right? He's communicating that they are sinful. Verse 5, Then he shall kill the bull before the Lord. And Aaron's sons, the priests, shall bring the blood and throw the blood against the sides of the altar that is at the entrance of the tent of meeting, and then they would burn the, act, the sacrifice. This killing of this animal, the blood being splattered across it, 
and the fire consuming it. All of that symbolizes the wrath of God. <coughs> the wrath of God against their sin. God is holy. Man is sinful. God is wrathful. But also, God was gracious. That they could be accepted by Him. <coughs> this was something for sinners to be accepted by the holy God was an act of grace. Failure to believe this. <clears throat> Failure to believe that God is holy, that God is wrathful, that God is gracious, and that man is sinful leaves people unable to be accepted by God. The two biggest natural reasons, remember, of why people aren't accepting the gospel, they're rejecting it, and they're not overwhelmed by this gospel of reconciling grace is, number one, because they don't believe they need to be reconciled to God. They've never really felt at odds with God. We're fine. It's all good. That's because they don't rightly understand God's holiness or His wrathfulness or their sinfulness. This is often because God is viewed as being this indulgently understanding God. He's really understanding. Like, as Pastor Nathan mentioned last week, like this permissive, lenient kind of grandpa, right? He just says, oh, just leave him alone. They don't mean any harm. This is such a low view of God. He is high and holy, which means he has, he has no category for sin in which he says, oh, that one's not a big deal. Can you imagine God saying of an abusive father who while he's beating his little girl says, God says, oh, he just had a hard day, just blowing off some steam, leave him alone. Or do those who are involved in the sex trafficking industry saying, oh, you know what, some of them are just trying to make money. These other people, they're just trying to have a good time, so it's not a big deal. It would be completely wicked to think, to speak, or to act as if any of these things are less than vile, evil, sinfulness. Many people object to saying that God is a God of wrath. Especially because they look at the New Testament and they say he's just so loving. He's a God of love. If you think God is too loving to be wrathful, then you neither understand the Bible nor the nature of God nor the nature of love. You see, God's holiness does indeed mean he should be wrathful. God's justice means he should be wrathful. But so does his attribute of love. His loving compassion necessitates that he also be wrathful. It is love that makes us hate. Because I love my wife and my children and my church, those who would seek to destroy them, I hate. God's holy love means that He cannot wink at sin. He cannot sweep it under the rug or simply ignore it. God is holy and He is wrathful. And this is why He commanded them to build the altar. For many who reject the gospel of reconciling grace, their view of God is not only that it's too low, but their view of themselves is that it's too high. They believe that they are not that bad. They don't feel that bad. Actually, they feel pretty good about themselves. Especially, comparatively. I mean, they're not the abusive father. They're not the, the one involved in child trafficking. So, But do you know, when we compare ourselves, our sins, to other people's sins, that's just proof of our sinfulness. That we can excuse our sinfulness means that we're sinners. And oh, we are so good at it. 
Husbands can lie to their wives. Because, well, it's just going to upset her. And it's going to mess up our, our, our evening. It's going to make things in our family awkward. She probably can get aggravated and yell at the kids. Now, I just probably shouldn't tell her this. Wives can subvert their husband's leadership because he doesn't really like doing these things. He's going to feel like I'm nagging him. I'm probably better at it anyway. Friends hide things from their friends because they might not accept me anymore if they knew this about me. Kids hide things from their parents because, well, parents just don't understand. Parents, they fail to discipline their kids because they make excuse after excuse after excuse. They weren't feeling well. It's, it's late. They're tired. We've had a busy day. I, I haven't been paying much attention to them. On and on and on, we excuse our sins. But often it's because, well, they're not that bad anyway because they're not like those sins. We don't excuse other people's sins. Did you notice that? Just our own. And it's true. Not all sin is equally destructive to other human beings, at least not immediately. But all sin is against God. All sin is anti-Christ. All sin. Sin is not a mere failure to keep some impersonal set of rules arbitrary thought up by some random person. Sin is violating God Himself. Sin is dishonoring God. It's, it's disregarding His holiness. It's degrading His glory. It's seeking to knock Him off His throne and say, I belong there. You don't. All sin is anti-God. You know, I've been talking about those who reject the gospel, those who don't receive with overwhelmed gratitude and humility and joy the gospel reconciling truth about Jesus. And yet, much of what I'm saying also applies to us who embrace the gospel. Did you notice that? There are times when we as Christians hear the gospel and, and can be told it and remember it and read it, and we're not overwhelmed either. You know, it's not just that we need to be reminded of the gospel truth. It's not just that we need to be reminded that God is holy and wrathful and gracious and that we are sinful. We sing it every week. We read it and preach it every week. But it's not just that we need to be reminded of it. See, the Israelites, they knew it. They had some sense. God had revealed this before. And yet, Leviticus 6 tells us that it was all day, every day that the fire was burning. Day and night. It was never to be put out. For not just day after day, but week and month and year and decade and century after century, it was to be kept burning. But listen, not just as a constant reminder of the same old basic truth. Yes, there is reminder and we need reminders, but I think more than that, we need a deeper revelation. We need to be shown more clearly. We don't need more revelation than this, but we need this to have a greater sight of it. We need this more illuminated to our souls. We need to see more deeply how sinful we actually are. I don't think we ever really grasp the depths of our sinfulness. And I think it's because we don't ever really grasp the depth of God's holiness. Last week, Pastor Nathan preached an awesome message in part about the holiness of God. And he quoted R.C. Sproul, who said, and I'll say it again here, that 
He says, I, I, was absor- I am absor- absorbed with the question of the holiness of God. Sproul says, I am convinced that it is one of the most important ideas that a Christian can ever grapple with. He says, the holiness of God is basic to our whole understanding of God and of Christianity. When we are failing to be overwhelmed with gratitude and joy and obedience and faith to our God and to our Savior Jesus Christ, it is because we are not grasping the sinfulness of ourselves or the holiness of God or the wrathfulness of God, or the graciousness of God. These are basic things, but we don't just need to be reminded of them. We need to dive deeper and have a fuller revelation of it. But many would say, but I do know that I'm a sinner. But the way they respond to it is by trying to fix it themselves. They believe that they can fix this broken relationship with God. They, They can handle it because they'll do enough good things to outweigh the bad, or they'll do enough really uh, extreme good things that God will be impressed by that, or they'll suffer enough, they'll make themselves feel ashamed and penitent enough, broken enough, that God will go, okay, that's enough, you felt bad enough, now you can be forgiven. This is terribly underestimating how sinful we are. It isn't just that we have sinned or even that we still sin. It's that we are sinners. It's who we are. Our sinfulness is such that we cannot, that we are literally unable to fix this broken relationship with God on our own. It's like the child who's sitting in a mud pile trying to clean themselves off. Or worse than that, it's like us trying to clean mud off ourselves when we are mud. We don't just have some sins that we do. We have a fountain of sin within. We cannot cleanse ourselves. This answers the question of why this bronze altar had to be communal. You see, it's right in the center. There's only one bronze altar for all the Israelites. And all of them had to come to it as a community. Why couldn't each Israelite just offer sacrifices for their own sins? In their own house? upon their own altar, with their own sacrifices, in their own way. Why couldn't they do that? Because we are so sinful that we need an unblemished, holy substitute to be offered in a holy place, in a holy way. Otherwise, it won't and we won't be accepted. Only the consecrated priest on the consecrated altar that Yahweh prescribed in a consecrated way would make the offering and therefore the offerer acceptable to God. The communal bronze altar in the tabernacle courtyard was necessary because this, this only this, was guaranteed to be holy enough for God's holy standards. That is, God is too holy and man is too sinful for us to be able to make ourselves acceptable to God on our own. Our predicament, our problem is worse than we think, even if we never think about it. And this is why God commanded them to build the altar, to help them to understand how desperate their need is to be reconciled to God and to help them to care about it, to care whether or not they were accepted by God. That's the second big natural reason. Many people just don't care if they're reconciled to God. And this is because they don't rightly understand God's wrath or God's grace. They aren't afraid of His wrath and they're not in love with His grace. They reason that they have enough friends. They don't need to make friends with God. They reason that God hasn't done anything for them anyway. 
Not enough, or not recently. There's much suffering goes on in the world. Look how much suffering is in their life. They deem it, they deem him not worth it. Not worth living a life of total faith in him and total surrender to his authority. No, they don't care about being friends with God. You know, while not caring if God dwells in your midst or not is unbelievably common in this world, it is also unbearably sad and unimaginably terrifying. Those who reject this gospel reconciliation in Christ do so because they don't see the terrifying reality of God's wrath. They speak of hell in flippant ways. Use it as a filler word or to be funny or when they're angry. They even joke about going there someday with their friends to have a party because it sounds so much better. That just proves how ignorant they are. They don't know what hell is because they don't know what the wrath of God is. Leviticus chapter 9 Moses and Aaron, they complete the altar of a burnt offering and they, they put the, offer, uh, the, the sacrifice on it. And then it says in Leviticus 9.24, Then fire came out from before the Lord. Like the fire came from God Himself and it consumed the burnt offering and the pieces of fat on the altar. And all the people saw it. They shouted and fell on their faces. They were not being flippant or glib or careless. They were terrified. They were bowing down, falling immediately, inevitably, involuntarily, falling to the ground in reverent awe because our God is a consuming fire. Look at Exodus chapter 27 verse 2. It reads, And you shall make horns for it on its four corners. Its horns shall be of one piece with it, and you shall overlay it with bronze. The, the horns, horns throughout the Bible are a, a symbol of power and strength. Strength of what here, though? Why to put the horns, a symbol of power, on the altar? I think to show that God's wrath was unstoppable. Nobody had power to withstand the wrath of God. These horns also had a practical purpose. In Psalm 118, 27, we read that we are to bind the festal sacrifice with cords. Take the animal and bind it up with cords up to the horns of the altar. It was to keep the animal on the sacrifice while it was bleeding and while it was burning. What happened to the animal substitute on that altar was a symbol of the wrath of God that should have and would have come upon the sinner who was offering the sacrifice if he did not come in a way that was acceptable to God. Listen, God's wrath should come upon us. That's justice. That's what's right. Unless we have a substitute. The bronze altar revealed that God was and is a God of wrath. Because of His holiness and His justice and His love, He is a God of wrath. But the bronze also revealed that God was a God of grace. 
And those who reject this gospel of reconciling grace do so because they, not only do they not see the reality, the terrifying reality of God's wrath, but they, don't under, they also don't understand the re, wonderful reality of God's grace. You know, too often I think sinners don't want a, a, a gospel of grace. They don't want God's saving grace. Well, maybe more to the point, they don't want to need His grace. Because that implies that they're sinful. It implies that they're weak. It implies that they are dependent upon another. We would much rather, rather, I think, often have God love us because we're wonderful and worthy. We would rather have the, the, the love of awe where God is impressed with us. He makes much of us and says, well, I just can't help but love you. That's what we want. Or at least we want the love of sympathy. You know, where people feel bad for you, they feel sorry for you, because you're getting a raw deal and you deserve way, way much better. That's what we want. Love of awe, or the love of sympathy, but what we need and what we are promised in God's covenant of grace in Christ is the love of grace. Getting something good when you deserve only bad. Only those who grasp God's holiness in God's wrathfulness and our sinfulness can truly grasp God's grace. God's grace is just as powerful as God's wrath. The horns on the altar, they represent power. Power for God to condemn, for Him to damn that animal. For Him to consume it in His wrath. And yet it's also those horns represent the power of God for salvation for the one who offers it in faith. The gospel is the power of God for salvation for all who believe. The hard truth that the bronze altar reveals is that God is far more holy and we are far more sinful than we realize. And that therefore we deserve far more wrath and we need far more grace than we realize. And this is sweet and wonderful grace. But grace never, listen, grace never means overlooking or excusing or minimizing sin. That's not grace. Grace means that God sees and He hates sin for what it is, and yet He also chooses to bear the cost that the sinner deserves. But that cost must be borne. If someone steals my car, in order to get rid of the, re the evidence, they push it off a bridge and it's completely destroyed. I can be gracious and forgive them and say, you don't have to pay it back. But does that mean that my car is automatically fixed? No. Somebody has to pay for it. The insurance company, me, both. Somebody. Somebody must pay. That's why Jesus came. Just as the sacrificial animals were bound with cords to the horns of the altar, so Jesus was bound with nails to the cross to reconcile sinners to God, to make us acceptable to God. But listen, don't think that Jesus is just another in a long line of sacrifices, like he's just another bull or goat or ram or sheep. Remember from Leviticus 1.3 that 
The, the, the purpose of offering sacrifices to God on this altar was that, that the sinner could be made acceptable to God. But the writer of the book of Hebrews tells us that that actually never happened. Not fully. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 1. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices on this altar that are continually offered every year, these sacrifices can never make perfect those who draw near. Verse 4. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. It never was possible. They were never intended to. And so therefore... Christ came into the world. Look at verse 10. Hebrews 10, 10. And by that will, that is the will of God, we have been sanctified. This is a special use of the word here. It's that we have been set apart and declared as holy. We have been made acceptable to God through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. That's once and for all time. Every time one of those animals were offered on the sacri- as a sacrifice on that altar, it was always... Not just, it fixed it. No, it always was pointing to Jesus who would do it once for all time. Jesus was not just the final sacrifice. He was the only sacrifice. He was the ultimate one that every one of these altar, uh, altar sacrificial animals was pointing to. The bronze altar was revealing to them as they offered this, their sacrifices over and over again. That God was holy. That God is Wrathful that God is gracious and that they are sinful. Why? Always pointing them forward to a better and fuller sacrifice. The ultimate and the only one. Jesus Christ who would one day come. And He would truly make them acceptable to God. He would bring reconciliation from from the holy God and the sinful man. And reconcile them to bring peace between them. And He would do so on the cross. And then he would one day will come again to bring perfect and full and complete union where God will settle among his people forever in all perfection. But along the way, he wasn't just revealing this to them and pointing to the cross of Jesus Christ. He was also calling them to respond accordingly. There is a required response to the revelation that God is holy and wrathful and gracious and that we are sinful. You know, God could have responded to the Israelites and said, you're too sinful, and wiped them out. But He didn't. He could have abandoned them, but He didn't. He says, I will settle among you, but in order to do that, I have to go to great lengths to give you all these measures so that I do not consume you, because I'm holy and you're sinful. But the altar was not just meant so that God could dwell safely among His people, was also meant to teach them, to reveal to them, and to require them. It was to, re- to reveal much to sinners and require much from sinners. And God could have, you know, just made the altar Himself. He could have had Moses up on the mountain, where He's here in Exodus 27, and says, hey, just why don't you do a one-and-done sacrifice? Because it's just symbolic pointing to Jesus anyway. But He didn't. He told them to make an altar, and gave them specific, detailed instructions. And then he told Moses to record what he told them, what he told them to build, the instructions for it, and then to record the actual construction of it in Exodus 38. 
And then we have literally hundreds and hundreds of times sacrifices and the altar and offerings are mentioned throughout the Old Testament. And more than that, there were literally thousands of times these, off- these sacrifices were offered on this altar. Thousands and thousands of times. Why? Because God was both revealing much to them and requiring much from them as he was pointing them to the cross of Christ. Jesus, you know, didn't just do a good work on the cross. He also came to proclaim a good word. He, he came to proclaim the good news about his good work. This is because the way of salvation <clears throat> is both a gracious work of God on behalf of sinners in Jesus in his death and resurrection. But it's also a gracious work of God within sinners. That is, in order to be reconciled to God, he must both turn away his wrath from us and turn our hearts away from our sin to him. No one is saved unless Jesus goes to the cross and rises again. No one. But listen, it's also true that no one is saved unless they hear and respond to the gospel truth in humble, repentant faith. We need both the revelation of God and yet we are required to respond to it. The Christian then is one whom God has worked for in Jesus on the cross and one whom God has worked in by the Holy Spirit to turn their heart to Jesus. So the gospel, just like the altar, is meant to reveal much to sinners and require much from sinners. And I'm going to give you just three responses that the altar, that the gospel indeed requires from us in response to the revelation that God is holy, and wrathful, and gracious, and that we are sinful. Number one, our response must be that of humble confession. Humble confession. Only those who openly acknowledge that they are sinners would take their offering to the altar. If it's a sinner's sacrifice, only sinners go. We must humbly confess that we are sinners. And yet, humble confession is not just a bare acknowledgement of the fact of sin. It is a heartfelt hatred of sin. It is a sincere sorrow over dishonoring God. It is a deep desire to not only be forgiven but also to be cleansed and changed. It is a complete commitment to pursue holiness for the, hope, for the glory of God. Or as the Westminster Larger Catechism puts it, and I love this, question 76 about what is repentance, that the Holy Spirit works it in the heart of a man to repent out of, when out of the sight and sense, I love that, out of the sight and the sense of sin, not only of the danger of sin, but also of the filthiness and the odiousness of sins. That it is ugly and vile and putrid. And that he grieves for and hates his sins as that he turns from them all to God, purposing and endeavoring constantly to walk with him in all the ways of new obedience. I think that's beautiful. This is humble confession that we are required. The gospel itself, the altar, is always calling people to humble confession. And this is it. And it's still for Christians today. 1 John 1.9 says that if we name and confess our sins, that He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But you notice that who it's addressed to. If we, Christians, confess our sins. We need to continually walk in a humble confession before our holy God. It is only the truly humble confessors that would offer a sacrifice on the altar, and it is only truly humble confessors that embrace the cross of Jesus Christ. But our second response is not only humble confession, but sincere devotion. The altar and the gospel 
require a response of sincere devotion. Because only those who genuinely love God, only those who are genuinely loving to God are driven to worship the holy, the wrathful, the gracious God exactly and only as He prescribes in His Word. It takes devotion, this profound commitment and allegiance to God. Exodus 38 verse 1 begins the section of talking about how the altar was being constructed, how it was made. But notice what it calls the altar. It doesn't call it the altar period or the altar, the bronze altar. It says, he made the altar of burnt offering of acacia wood. Bezalel made the altar of burnt offering. That's what he called it. That's because that was the offering that was most often, maybe the most important offering, put it on it. The altar of burnt offering. Sometimes the altar of burnt, uh, the burnt offering was called the whole offering or the whole burnt offering because you would burn the entire animal completely to ashes so that the entire life of the animal was taken up. Do you see? We must give our entire lives up to Him. It, it requires total devotion to God. As Paul says, I appeal to you, my brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies, your whole selves, as living sacrifices to Him, holy and acceptable to God. This is your reasonable service, your spiritual worship. We are to be devoted to God completely, but our devotion also must be sincere. It's sincere devotion. Sincerity is so underrated these days. We must be sincere. The, the, the public nature of the altar that it was right out in the tabernacle courtyard for all to see. You, if you were going to offer a sacrifice, it was in front of everybody. The public nature of it, I think, made the confession and the devotion that God requires all the more challenging. Because if you were to go, it might make one more hesitant because they had to be humble not just before God, but before everyone else. Yes, I'm coming again to offer a sacrifice. Yes, I am a sinner. And yet... The public nature of this altar also made it more challenging because there could be some people who come more eagerly than they should because they weren't really sincere. They were just motivated out of impressing their very religious community all around them. See, look how, look how religious and spiritual I am. I've come to offer another sacrifice to Yahweh. Sincerity is so tricky. Like, it's, it, it, we need our hearts to be focused on Him we need total devotion and we need sincere devotion. The requirement, the required response of the revelation about God and ourselves is significant and it's sobering and we need God, God's help for it. So let me ask you, what area of your life lacks sincere or total devotion to God? Maybe the Lord right now is, is reminding you or... or convicting you for the first time of something and you're going, yes, that's, I'm not totally, sincerely devoting to Him. And if you don't think of anything, that's a problem. Ask Him. Ask Him. God, search me and try me and know my heart and, and see and show me if there is any sin in me, any grievous way and lead me in the way everlasting. But our third response that is required to the revelation of God, that He is holy, wrathful, and gracious, and that we are sinful. It's not only humble confession and sincere devotion, but we need to respond with focused faith. Focused faith. 
Only those who trust God's gracious character and His, and His faithful promises would go to Him and offer on the altar. Only those who, who believed had faith in His authoritative word to accept Him based upon their union with the substitute, only those who were trusting in Him for that would go and offer an offering to God and be accepted by God. And listen, because we are more sinful than we realize, we need faith because our humble confession and our sincere devotion will always be lacking. Always. Our confession will never be humble enough. Our devotion will never be total or sincere enough that God would be impressed and accept us. We must have faith. And our faith must not be in our understanding or in our confession or humility or sincerity or our devotion or anything about ourselves. Our faith must be focused solely in the worthiness and the sufficiency of our substitute, Jesus Christ. And even our sacrificial offerings of devotion and worship and obedience and praise and prayer, all that we give to God now as Christians, these are only accepted by God if they are, yes, sincere and humble, yet they also must be given with focused faith in Jesus, that He makes them accepted, that He makes us and our offerings to Him acceptable. Listen to 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 5. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God. How? Through Jesus Christ. We offer our obedience and our love and our faith and our praise to God. Only through Jesus Christ are they acceptable. All of our efforts are weak and they're tainted with our sinfulness. But Jesus makes them clean. Jesus makes them acceptable. We no longer have a bronze altar to go to. We no longer need it. We no longer have animals to sacrifice with blood. We no longer need it because of the cross and the blood of Jesus Christ. And it's still because of that, not just that we are accepted, but that our entire lives and our acts of faith and love and obedience are accepted by Him. We are, and our sacrifices, our offerings to God are only acceptable through faith, focused faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. So this morning, if you are not having your faith focused on Jesus Christ, as we come to partake of the Lord's Supper communion together this morning, I urge you not to partake of it. It's not yet for you. I don't care how sincere your devotion is. I don't care how humble your confession is. If your faith is not focused on Jesus Christ as your substitute, then you are not accepted by God. And this meal is not yet for you. And when others take it, instead of partaking of it, bow your head. Close your eyes and ask God to give you eyes to see a sight and a sense of the danger of your sin and the all-sufficiency of the grace of God in Christ. And then afterwards, come and talk to me or one of the other pastors or another Christian. Put it on a connection card. You want somebody to talk with you? We would love to share with you more. But if you are trusting in Christ, your faith is focused on Him, then I invite you to take the wafer this bread that represents the broken body of Jesus Christ, that He was put on the altar of the cross as a substitute for our sins and take it with faith. In the same way, take the juice that represents the blood of Jesus that was poured out for sinners, just like the blood that was splattered on the altar and was splattered on the cross. Jesus pours His blood over every repentant 
sinner who comes to him with focused faith. And take it knowing not only you, but all your offerings and all your sacrifices are acceptable to God through him. after you've taken communion, I invite you to stand. We're going to respond by by singing, calling one another to to come to Jesus, the only sacrifice for our sins that will suffice to cleanse us and bring us to God.